We're taking a little Christmas detour from our preaching through John's Gospel this morning. It's really the second part of a triptych or three-part series. Last week was the promise of peace. This is the Prince of Peace. And next week, as we look out over the next year, we're praying for the pursuit of peace. So the Lord has really put that on my heart, as I was mentioning in the first hour today, that it's very important that we see what the Bible has to say about peace. Uh, if there has ever been a time where our, our, our world has been in turmoil, uh, it's now Maybe not perhaps as bad as it was during world wars, but uh, there is uh, always wars, it seems, or rumors of wars going on, fighting among men, and there's been a lot of disruption. And we need, uh, even in our own country, things are starting to unravel. And so we want to continue this season, this series. And this morning, since we're uh, the day before Christmas, we're looking at the arrival of the one who is referred to as the Prince of Peace. This portion of scripture that I want to read together with you is from Luke's gospel. We heard already this morning from our readers the uh, angel's promise, angel's prophecy uh, that what he came and arrived and spoke to Mary and told her that she would be giving birth uh, to the Messiah, to the Savior, and she launches off in her Magnificat, as it's recalled. And so we, we are ready to hear the passage just before the one we looked at last week in the promise of peace. And that was looking at a lot of the promises made through prophecy of the coming arrival of the Prince of Peace. And now he's arrived. He's arrived. He's a baby. And so we want to read that important passage in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Father, we pause to turn our attention toward you. You are the reason we are here. This is a promise made long ago as we've been exploring these past couple of weeks. We know, O oh Lord, that out of your great love, that your promise to bring peace is being fulfilled and has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and his arrival this, this day that we celebrate. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of that, that because of all that Jesus Christ has done as our Savior, that we always have opportunity for peace. So, Lord, help us to understand the importance of how you define peace from the word of God and how that finds its way into the practice of our lives, that we might ourselves know peace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is perhaps one of the most well-read or well 
understood popular passages because it is the Christmas story. As I said, we looked at the second part of this when the angel Gabriel appeared to the shepherds to announce the arrival of Messiah and all the joy that came with that expectation and the shepherds showing up and they go and they uh, find the baby and so on and they are celebrating that. So the title is taken from Isaiah 9-6. This is one of the prophecies that was mentioned to you. So some 700 years before the birth of Christ, we can read in Isaiah 9-6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's an important word. I want you to hold on to that word given as we go through our message this morning. And the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he is royalty here. He is not only, I, I love how he, the expected one, the suffering servant as he's named throughout Isaiah, the Messiah as he comes, he's going to have many monikers, many things that define who he is. We've seen through John's gospel, for instance, how he equates himself with the Father, everlasting Father. So he's eternal. This is an eternal one that's coming who equates himself equally with deity. And we covered that extensively as Jesus did in his various discourses through John's gospel. Mighty God, well, there it is right there. Wonderful counselor and so on. So in, in this case, we're looking exclusively at this title of Prince of Peace. What does that mean? mean? What, what is our understanding of what peace is over against how the Bible defines peace? But most importantly, how are we able to attain peace? How are we able to secure peace for ourselves? Are we, do we need peace? That, that, that shouldn't be an argued point, should it? That should be a moot point if there ever was one. So we want to look at all of these things as we reflect on this day. So what we've heard this morning is the divinely inspired eternal record of the birth of Christ. So we've heard that as it's being read from Scripture. This is the birth of the incarnate Son of God. This is the Lord, Jesus Christ. We know that in the world we don't have peace. We, we know that even in our own lives we suffer from, apart from Christ, we suffer from a lack of peace. We talked in first hour about how all the world really suffers anxiety. We suffer the anxiety of knowing that there is just something utterly wrong with us, with the world, with the way things are. We have an innate sense. You know, Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. So we sense that there's more. And it can't possibly take place here because everything here is dying. And we see death all around us. And it's really hard for us to understand how in this kind of an environment, an environment of a short span of life, a brief wisp, a fog, a, a mist, and then it's over grass that grows up and it's cut down. Where do we find peace? Where do we find peace? Throughout the world, we, we need peace. We see our children from everything from our children fighting to mom and dad fighting to uh, in churches fighting, to all-out wars that are going on. And we're experiencing that right now. There's at least two that we know of. And who knows what this coming year will present for us. And so we pray for Israel. We pray for Ukraine. We pray for these wars. But can we ever find peace? How, how is peace 
achieved here. In our human experience, in our society, in the sort of global society, how is that effort made, the UN? Are they getting it done? Out of every treaty, somebody once said, out of every treaty, and they looked into this, out of every treaty that mankind has ever made that's published and known, how many have been kept? None. Not one. Because it's a temporary piece at best. And a temporary peace is nothing more than a truce. It's, more, it's, it's just an agreement by two parties, whether it's two countries or two people, not to fight anymore. That doesn't resolve the problem. You cannot have true peace in the absence of truth. Truth is not being spoken, only somebody's point of view. And they reach some place where they're like, well, let's just agree, you know, for the sake of the children. Let's just agree for the sake of Europe. Let's just agree for the sake of the Middle East. How long does that last? Not very long, sadly. So we learned about this promise of peace last week. God, in fact, promised to bring peace to those who sincerely seek it. It's a promise. It's there. You can have it. There's no question about it. It's indicative. In other words, it's a fact. It is certainly done and available. And here, here's how it's done through this Prince of Peace. But we look at more of this prophecy, even through the psalmist, Psalm 85, verse 8 and 9. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. That's what we all should be saying. What does the Lord have to say about all this? For he will speak peace to his people. To his saints, those that belong to him are the sincere ones that are sincerely seeking it from the God that they acknowledge, the God that they know that they are out of reconciliation with, they are out of fellowship with. Let's see what he has to say. And he speaks to his people, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Glorifying God, of course, for his deliverance for even the potential to be reconciled, that that's even possible. Divorce after divorce, family member after family member, splitting apart, churches splitting up, countries splitting up. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's, it's ongoing. Nothing can seem to find unity. Satan's whole agenda is fragmentation, is it not? It's to split things up. That's what he does, and yet we fall to his ploy, we become prey to his agenda when we turn away from God's promise of peace and the means and the means we have of reconciliation. But they won't hear. I was just imagining these world leaders. You think you can get through to Vladimir Putin? Do you, do you think you can get through to Mahmoud Abbas? They're like whited walls impregnable, impenetrable. Why? Well, a simple answer would be because of the pride of man. Yes? I'm not willing to give in. That's why you have divorces, church splits, wars, all of it. I'm unwilling to give in. Zechariah, this is on to his 
what God has said in terms of speaking these promises into our lives. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly. Over what? About something that's yet future. This is a prophet, right? O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Praise the Lord. The prince of peace is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And that's exactly how he ends up riding in, in his triumphal entry when he is put to death. But then it goes on in verse 10, and he shall speak peace to the nations. That's precisely what we've seen him doing in John's gospel. He's speaking peace. Who's listening? He's speaking peace to the near. He's speaking peace to the far. He's given his life to unify people. Will people hear? Can he, if, and if he can't, nobody can, can he penetrate the prideful, arrogant heart of mankind? Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And when it says that in Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem is its most recent name when they're writing this and they're just referring to the ancient name Ephrathah. That's what it was called. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're tiny, you're small. So was the teenager that gave birth in a livestock stall. It's all about humility, isn't it? We saw with with. Gabriel, coming to the shepherds? Why not show up at the temple? Wait till the high priest and the Sanhedrin are assembled there. Get it done. This is your religion, isn't it? These are your people, aren't they? Well, they're being oppressed by Rome. Okay, we'll go to Rome. Talk to the Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. <laughs> this man was... This Caesar Augustus. By the way, Caesar is a title. Augustus is a religious term, really. It's the exalted one. He was to be worshipped. This Octavius, Gaius Octavius, was to be worshipped. He was amazing in terms of his administrative power and his military prowess. He was the grand nephew and the adopted son and the primary heir of uh, Julius Caesar, and so he was kind of special, but he was an amazing man. He single-handedly, he, his final battle uh, where he won over Antony excuse me, in 29 B.C. at Actium, uh, the Senate was just, they were exalting him, just this amazing man with all of this talent, military uh, ability, and so they made him the first Roman emperor. So he's the first Roman emperor that they referred to as Caesar Augustus. He claimed to be the savior of the world. Why? Because he brought about what was called Pax Romana. You remember what that is in the Latin. It's a Roman peace. This is why we focus on this word. This is why should not a people of God listen to what God has to say about what real peace is. Did he establish peace? Is the Roman Empire still in power? Did, did he, this Caesar Augustus, live forever? 
No, but he accomplished a lot. Isn't the timing interesting that the Lord would bring the true Prince of Peace who would, who would secure peace for all mankind during the time where the rest of the entire known world all the way around the Mediterranean as he has accomplished peace in the known world at that time is going on both those things simultaneously? Isn't that interesting? But one is coming from Rome. One is being exalted. One is being worshipped. Hail Caesar. He better be worshipped or you could lose your life. This is deity. Nothing short of deity who accomplished Pax Romana, who accomplished peace in our time. He had the respect of everybody. It was the end of the Republic. We've got, we've got God has shown up and brought peace. It's time I brought my son. Galatians 4, 4, right? In the fullness of time, when those intersections of history cross, I'll bring the real Prince of Peace. Because you don't understand how far short of true peace you've, you've fallen in terms of your understanding. Sure, it was a wonderfully quiet time, but it didn't last. Neither did Rome itself. The entire empire gone after 350 or 400 years. It says that in Bethlehem from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Do you know what that expression means? He's always lived and he always will live. Who is this person? We know now. Verse 4 and 5 in Micah 5, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. This, this is true security. This is true peace. This is everlasting because it comes from the everlasting Father. This peace you can't take away. Nobody can remove. No matter the strength of the force of their armies, no matter the depth of the evil of the betrayal, you cannot remove this peace. You want some? I do. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Okay, what are we talking about here? Uh, my peace is in a he? Let's not get into gender pronouns here, but uh, I think it's talking a, about a, a male person. Who could that be? He will be their peace. The word peace shows up in the ESV 367 times. Of course, one of the places that I want to look first, one of the first places I want to look is how the Old Testament talks about shalom. In New Testament Greek and in the Septuagint form of the Old Testament, the Greek form of the Old Testament, it's Irene. We get the name Irene from that. It means peace. In any case, it means peace. So do we have peace when... Things are le less hectic. When the babies are finally napping, when the kids are finally settled down, if that ever happens, right? Is that peace? We say it is, right? Oh, it's, how was it today? Oh, it was peaceful. Why? Because 
situationally, things were, sorry, it was already in the sermon. Is when it's less chaotic and relatively quiet, is that peace? Is that how the Bible defines peace? When a person starts, stops fighting with their spouse or their neighbor or their coworker, is that peace? That's how we've been defining it. Is that how the Bible defines it? Or when these wars finally cease, if they ever did, did we achieve peace? So Neville Chamberlain thought, the prime minister of Britain, right? Great Britain, when he met with Hitler in 1937, right? And he made terms for peace. Did he have peace? Did he secure peace? Why, he said, this is, I, we have achieved true peace in our day. And that was not true, was it? Because there goes Hitler into Poland the next year, one year later. So what is peace? We can, at the best mankind can do is create a temporary situational peace. But we have to do that per, through either persuasion or strength of force or coercion. We have, to, we have to force somebody through authority in an authoritative way or we have to coerce them or through some army. That's the only way it's, we have quiet. We have a cessation of the fighting. That's all you have. That's not peace. Peace is not a cessation of conflict. Man is born for trouble, Job said, as sparks fly upward. His thoughts are only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, pre-flood. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. So what is this peace that he brings, this prince of peace, the promised one, the one who would come and secure peace? We have to understand, first of all, the extent of the problem. In Romans 8 and verse 20, that's just one place where it talks about the creation being subjected to something called futility, which is matiates in the Greek. And what matiates means, it means vanity or nothingness or transitoriness. It means transitoriness is Here's a definition for you, and this is exactly where we're at, an impermanence, an impermanence that suggests the inevitability of ending or dying, fleeting, passing away. That is what the whole world suffers. It's transitional. I use that word from time to time to talk about nothing's ever static. It's always transitioning in a fallen way. It doesn't go from chaos to order, as some wrong-headed philosophers said. It goes from order to chaos, if left alone. But it's the impermanence part, the, the temporal nature of it, that the world suffers under and is subjected to. So I've got five ways in which true peace is defined in the Scripture. And first of all, as I mentioned, true peace has permanency. So nothing is permanent in this world. We know that. Everything is static. Everything grows up, has a season. Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. We understand that. These are the seasons of our life. 
So I mentioned the Hebrew term shalom. If we're going to understand what true peace is as biblically defined, we need to understand this term, shalom. Because it's not how, when I dug into what this actually, according to the ancient Hebrews, what their concept of it was, it's nothing like how we use the term peace today. This term shalom has the meaning of wholeness or completeness. When all we ever experience in a fallen way is things, parts, and things missing from us. We experience, as I mentioned earlier, fragmentation, things split apart, things missing, things incomplete. Uh, it means soundness and health. It, it means safety, prosperity, and how God defines it. Seeking the well-being, the physical and spiritual and emotional well-being of another. They greet each other. Whether it's hello or goodbye, it's the same word, shalom. Shalom, what you're, what you're praying for for that person is whole and completeness. And they understood that to mean that it must come from God. It doesn't come from, here's what one writer said. First of all, it carries with it, this is a quote, carrying with it the implication of permanence. Peace cannot be determined by our own selfish viewpoints or biased needs, end quote. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's, <what we> achieve, <laughs> that's what we try to negotiate, isn't it? With our truces, let's not fight anymore. All right, what do you got to have? Well, here's what I got to have, right? Otherwise, we got a problem. That's not Shalom. Uh, just a cessation from that conflict with each other. It's a desire for the other person that you're greeting. It's a prayer that they would be whole, complete in health and prosperous in terms of their holiness, their healthiness. And they would have all that they need. We mentioned Isaiah 9, verse 6, Unto us a child is born at the opening. Let's read it together with verse 7 as well. Unto us a child is born, to us a child is, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's permanent. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. That's how it's upheld. True justice and true righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Where are we going to get that from? We are the most unjust, unrighteous creatures on the planet. That's going to have to be a foreign righteousness coming from some other being that's perfect. Well, and indeed it is. Only our creator God is able to lead us in the way of reconciliation and true peace. You will not know true peace apart from true reconciliation as that's defined in the Bible. Well, we're getting there. We're finding out that it has to come from God. We do not have the capacity within us to be at peace with one another. It's not there. It is not there. 
It's as we're talking about in the first hour. It's a withholding of certain truths that might cause a further breach in the relationship, but we're going to withhold that because we lust after approbation or the approval of other people. Is that what Jesus does in the discourses we've been covering for the past couple months? He's giving them truth that is polemical. It tears them apart. It separates them. That's what he came to do, according to the prophet Simeon, as he said to the, his mother Mary when he was a baby at the temple. It's going to be for the rising of some and falling for others. And your heart is going to be pierced through, Mary. The expression, the God of peace, occurs several times in the New Testament, mainly in the New Testament epistles. So he's the one who peace or shalom has to come from. We, as a fallen race, cannot come on with it. The best we can do is a truce. That's not true peace. And it's definitely not permanent. It's, it's temporary. Isaiah 57, 17 to 19. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. This is the Lord speaking through his prophet. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but listen to this. After that description, you think, and now I'm walking away from this deal. That's what we do. We know how to break things up, don't we? Oh, in a heartbeat. What takes work is actually keeping something together. What takes work is not using the word divorce. What takes work are for friends to remain together. That takes work. I, he says, will heal him. What benevolence, what grace. I will lead him. But the important word there is I. It's God has to do this. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. Paul repeats those very words in Ephesians 2 when he's talking about how uh, Christ takes the tomb and makes them what? One. The near and the far, bringing them together. And we spend our days pulling that apart. We need to hear it, Christian friends. We need to hear it. Jehovah Shalom is one of his names. Jehovah Shalom. That's good news because that means he's got what we need, true, lasting peace. It's his name. Not just wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but he is Jehovah Shalom. As the Hebrew source that I was referencing says, Jehovah Shalom is one of God's names, quote, for it is he who gives unity to the whole of creation. They understand Matthias. They understand this transitory nature, this fragmented people. 
The criteria, they go on, for shalom, true peace, then rests with God, end quote. Shalom is a fully satisfied soul. It's a fully contented being. They need nothing. And someone who's fully contented is able to get their mind on other people instead of themselves, aren't they? What the need of other people are. And that's what the ancient Hebrews advocated with that term, shalom. They see each other, shalom. That's them saying, I wish you wholeness, completeness, happiness, the way the Bible defines, defines happiness, not just some temporary giddy glee, but a deep-down contentedness, a completeness. I am, I am full, as David writes. My cup's running over. I don't need any more. You, O oh Lord, are my portion. You, O oh Lord, are my lot. I have everything I need, so I don't have to fight with you. I don't have to fight with my wife. I don't have to fight with my boss. I don't have to fight with my neighbor. I can walk throughout the day in peace and mean it. Not just some foisted, hoisted up smile, some <coughs> superficial that I have to do because of where I work. No, it swells up from inside. It's an unstoppable joy that's written all over the face. Amazing. Shalom, or true peace, is what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden pre-fall. Why? Because they were in perfect relationship with their creator God. How? Obedience. They, at that point, were listening to what he said, weren't questioning it. They were perfectly contented people. By the way, if Adam and Eve, our first parents, had everything that they needed, their sense of complete contentment, perfect parents, how can the way we turned out be blamed on our parents? Where did their sin come from? It comes from inside, doesn't it? That's where peace has to be secured. It has to be secured in the thought life, in the mind, in the heart in the affections, in the emotions, in the perceptions, in the judgments, the way you're looking at the world, your worldview, peace needs to be secured in all those places. Everything that makes up your ontology, the ontological view of you, your being, your whole being, that's the idea of shalom. I am complete. I am complete in Christ. I am full of Christ. I don't need anything else. It's a dangerous thing to say around Christmas time. I could use a few things. I was kidding. The peace was disrupted when the breach in the relationship happened, and it happened because of their disobedience, and that's still how it happens. Don't we get it? Yeah, we get it, but we don't care. Is our pride that formidable? Yes, it is. What can possibly get through to us? I'd, the Lord knows. So does the Word of God. So let's press on. The second point about true peace is that it's, we've picked up on this already. We've seen all the pronouns. It's relational and not circumstantial. 
My joy, my sense of shalom, my sense of completeness, happiness, wholeness, goodness, contentedness should not be predicated on my circumstances. Oh, I was doing great until she showed up. <laughs> right? You shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> It'll make me want to talk to Ray afterward. <laughs> no, it, it shouldn't depend on that. That often it does. Why? Why? Listen to this. I think this is one of the most treasured verses for what we're talking about this morning when Jesus said in John 14, 27, listen to care carefully and find hope. Peace I leave you. He's about to go to the cross. This is his final teaching. He's turned away from teaching in public. In chapter 13, he's meeting for the, with the Last Supper, and he's given, he's exclusively focusing on his disciples from chapter 13 to chapter 16. And then he prays to the Father in 17. In 18, he's arrested. So listen to what he says. Peace I leave with you. These are his disciples. By extension, that's us. By extension, we're the ones he's praying for in chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. My peace I give to you. This possessive pronoun, this is a person, isn't it? This is a person we're talking about. A person who has the only being, perfect, pure, and perfectly righteous, which is exactly what we need. Because if I had only sinned one time in my life, that's impossible. One time, one thought, one word, one deed. Where would I be when I died without Christ? In hell for eternity. So let's stop thinking about this whole grading on a curve thing. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You sin one time, you need Christ desperately, lest you die in that condition. We have nothing good within us. We've talked about this many times. My peace I give to you. So true peace is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. A gift of immeasurable value. How do you place a value on perfect righteousness that's imputed to our account? When we confess our sins and turn to Christ for a righteousness, we aren't possibly able to gin up in our own lives. We can't do it. Even if we sin sinned once, we're lost. Something, this piece is something of immeasurable value that belongs to the Son of God and has been freely given to us at no cost. What kind of generosity, what kind of grace, what kind of benevolence is this? Why? Why would he do that? Let's not look in the mirror at that point. There's nothing good in us. And he offers it to us freely. In chapter 16, verse 14, as he's still talking to his disciples, he says, with regard to the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me. Very personal again. 
This is relational. It's not circumstantial, this peace that comes. They will, he will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You will have the words. Remember the Old Testament passages we looked at. I will speak peace to the nations. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. When I leave, you're not going to hear my voice anymore. Not in a physical sense. It's not going to be audible to you. But my voice will still be speaking to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the form, and the Holy Spirit will descend, come upon you, and he will teach you all the truth. Everything that you could ever want or ask for, he will provide. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's his promise. Not as the world gives. <laughs> Aren't you thankful for that clause? Not as the world gives. I don't want what the world calls, calls peace. I bought into it at one time before Christ. I want nothing to do with it. It's fraught with falsehood. Truths are missing from it. It's a, it's a man cobbled together agreement to satisfy each other, to meet our own covetousness? I'm not interested. I know that to be only leading to failure, a brokenness to the treaty, a failure of the truce. It's a counterfeit peace. It's a counterfeit peace. Satan presents himself as an angel of what? Light. But we're warned from Isaiah, beware of those who say peace, peace, what? When there is no peace, you have no peace. Well, we're not fighting right now. Give it time. Give it time. Because we're rascals. So this peace, this peace, this peace comes from heaven. This peace comes in a pure form. This peace is, as was mentioned, is forever, is everlasting. It's eternal. It's not temporal. It's not a counterfeit. It's the real thing coming from the Prince of Peace himself. So it's unshaken. It's undisturbed by circumstances. They can't affect it. Galatians 4, 4, I mentioned earlier, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now that's important to remember. In the fullness of time, when your circumstances are, tip, are very unfavorable to you, he knows when to send his Son to you. So it's not just about salvation. Of course, in the immediate context, we're talking about the birth of Christ for salvation. We're talking about in an ongoing sense in the fullness of time. In other words, at a time God knows that you have need of him and you have need of his peace, you turn to him and you have it. You have it. He knows. He finished John chapter 16, his teaching to the disciples with this, these wonderful words. I have said these things to you that in me, there's that personal pronoun, there's that possession again. In me, in me you find peace. Don't look for it anywhere else. Don't try to, to 
humanly generated. It's not going to happen. Turn to Christ because in him, in him, you find peace. J.C. Ryle said this about the timeliness of God knowing how we need peace when things are particularly upsetting or in turmoil or conflict. He wrote this, let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us. As if we knew better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. The heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. He's orchestrating all things, Hebrews 1.3, right? He upholds all things by the word of his power. Why do we give up believing that when things circumstantially become unraveled? He goes on, a true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted. That's a, a mind splitting, a disquieted mind or, or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God, end quote. I don't know how he's going to work it all out. It isn't important for me to know how he's all going to work it out. But he works it all out to his glory, doesn't he? And our greater good. We must believe that. Third, true peace can only come when broken relationships are reconciled. So that's the starting place. You have to recognize that you can't do this yourself. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have fights. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you, by the way? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that wars in the members? You lust and you fight and you war because you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss according to your lusts. Right? James 4, 1 and following. Wow. So true. So the relationship that was breached, broken, has to be reconciled. I, that takes a great dose of humility on our part to say, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I'm in, utterly incapable. I'm a sinner, and I need your peace. I can't survive the way I'm going. I don't, I fear, I tremble. This is a terrifying fear, a servile fear instead of a familial reverential fear. This is the, the fear of a, of a slave. I fear you, God. I, I know that you exist. I know you will judge. I have a conscience, so I need peace. I need peace. It has to be reconciled. I mentioned Ephesians 2 makes this clear. Ephesians 2, 14 to 17. For he himself is our peace. There it says it again. It's Christ himself that is our peace. Why is that good? Well, for a number of reasons. The one that just comes to mind is, I don't want any peace crafted by anything on this planet, do you? I don't care if it's, it's the greatest mediators globally. I, I, I don't want that. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, it's anticipated. I mean, it's obviously implied there that we are naturally 
hostile to one another. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself. Notice the in. In him you find peace. In himself one new man. So we are referred to as the body of who? Christ. You and I are the flesh and blood on this planet anyway, with Christ in us, are his body. One new man in place of two, so making peace. What lacks peace? Something that's split apart. You will not know peace. I'll have peace as soon as I get this, as soon as this divorce goes through. No, you won't. You may get to the point of suicide. You don't know what you're talking about. I can live without her. I can live without him. How deceived, how self-deluded and self-deceived we can be, can't we? Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. That's what needs to happen. That's where it starts. If we're going to access any peace in our lives in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It was slain on the cross when the imputed unrighteousness of man was put on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to, who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. There it is again, same word, in him. That's where it's found. And we go everywhere. We reach out everywhere else to find peace. And he lets us exhaust ourselves. And it's only going to be found in him. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. So both Israel and the Gentiles out went his message. His message of peace, true peace, lasting peace, quiet in the mind, calmed in the spirit, the soul at rest. It's the only way. It's the only way it's accessed. Four, true peace. This is Hang with this because this is important. True peace is accomplished externally and experienced internally through reconciliation. So when we're reconciled, we agreed that we have to start there. Scripture says you've got to be reconciled with God if you can know peace at all. This peace is external to us. It's external in that it's in Christ. Christ is the one who accomplishes all of it for us, but it's something that we experience internally as well. So receiving peace with God. Now that's external. It's subjective. It's justification. That's a forensic term. When the gavel drops and says not guilty by virtue of the grace of God and your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not guilty forever. You don't have to return to that. It's objective. And it's also his historic. This is, this is an addictive, indicative. This is fact. This has been accomplished for you. Christ did this on the cross. He waits for us to come to him. It's, it's, it's true in history. The record proves it. It's external from us. We didn't have to do anything. 
We simply access what is objectively true, factually true, done for us, historical in the record. And so then we can read Romans 5 and verse 1 that verifies that. Therefore, since we have been justified, bam, not guilty, since we've been justified by what? Faith, that's right. Faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God is external. It's outside of us. It's objective. It's, it's a judicial situation that gets right one time, and that's it. You're saved. You are. You belong to him. Mankind has been and ever will be at war with God. This, what we're hearing, is his gospel of peace. Paul refers to that as that in Ephesians 6.15, this gospel of peace. I like that. Romans 5, again, verse 10 and 11, we were enemies of God. And for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, done, settled, you turn to him, I need you for the propitiation for my sins. I need payment for it that I can't come up with. I'm a desperate beggar. That's how you go to the cross. That's how you access peace. It comes no other way. And no other way do you want to stand before him when your life is over. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, it's a foreign righteousness we needed access because we looked around in the, in the, in the, among all human beings and there's nobody that fits the bill of living perfectly to serve as our sacrifice. We cry out to the God who's had a plan from before the foundation of the world. This didn't catch him by surprise to save you and I. And bring us peace. And not just peace. Yeah, we'll have peace, all right, when we get to heaven. You can have peace now. Both externally and internally. Externally is peace with God. We now, having been justified, we have peace with God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It's that pure blood, the blood, the royal blood of a prince of peace who is also everlasting father and almighty God. It's the blood of God that drained out that day for our sake. And he's given us his royal blood in us who are in him. So that's receiving peace with God. There's also receiving the peace, what? Of God. That's internal. How do we get the peace in here, inside? Help me to the place where I can get my mind quiet, where I can calm my spirit. Philippians 4. 
4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What is he rejoicing about? He's in prison. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness? I'm in here on trumped-up charges. They're not even... This is a sham. I've got... I've, I've got I'm in touch with my attorney. He's going to... He'll be here any day. Jay Noble Daggett is his name. He'll get me off. It's from Rooster Cogburn. Never mind. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, it's easy for you to say. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is my request? I need peace. I need peace. How do I get reconciled? Through Jesus Christ. If I acknowledge that, it says, and the peace, if I do these things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? It's this internal. It's subjective. So it's something that you, you, you feel. It's a, it's, a, it's a sense of well-being. First John writes about it. I mean, this is something that we just know that we know. It's in our hearts. I know I'm going to be okay. Even though the world is burning down, I'll be all right. Even though I lost my job, even though this, my family left my life, no matter what the problem, I went to the doctor, and it's not good. No matter what the situation is, I have the peace of God in me because I have the Prince of Peace in me. That's the point. We experience that. But notice it's, I put imperative in there because this is actually a command. These are things that you're to do. Let your reasonableness be made to, uh, known to other people. You're rejoicing always in every case. You have no reason not to. If you've been reconciled with God through Christ and you have Christ in you, you have no reason not to. So you should rejoice. Why? Because that brings God glory. Brings him glory. It brings legitimacy to your evangel. You're giving the gospel to people and perhaps it's, it's of non-effect. Maybe that's because this isn't what we look like. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because we walk around with expressions on our face that look like the faceplate for the book of Lamentations. We have every reason to rejoice. He's in a prison. He's done it all. All we have to do is acknowledge our need for him. Let others know about our reasonableness to everyone, he says. The Lord is at hand. He's watching. He's there when we're pouting. He's there when we're doubting. He's there when we're complaining, murmuring. Do not be anxious about anything. That's an imperative, friends. Don't have a divided mind. Keep your mind singularly focused on your devotion to Jesus Christ and see what happens. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let requests be made known to God. Cry out to him, the psalmist does, over and over. Why are you 
cast down, right? Oh, my soul. Hope in God. Yet will I praise him. My Lord, my salvation, my God. Then he gives us more instructions. So see, this is why the word imperative is there. The other is a settled issue. It's objective. This is subjective, experiential. And here's how it's achieved. Verse 8 and 9 in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. This is a, from the, the family of words that comes from logizomai. We get logic from it. Think on these things. That's what you set your mind on. And that way, I'm singularly focused on him who is true, noble, and just. Him is pure and lovely and has a good reputation. There's excellence in him, in him alone, praiseworthiness in him alone. Keep yourself focused on him. Or Paul will be afraid for your sake. That like Eve, you're led astray in your mind. The mind is the gateway to the heart. The things you choose to think about and dwell on form either affections or apprehensions, fears, anxieties, doubt, bitterness. It, it fragments off in a dozens of different ways. Stay focused on Christ. If we do that, listen to what he says. If, there's, if it's lovely, commendable, any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He's practicing these things. That's why he's starting out with rejoice. He probably doesn't feel like saying that in terms of his circumstances, yeah? How he feels in those shackles. He's doing it anyway. We need to do it anyway. Just praise him. See what happens. Rejoice. Rejoice. And again, he says, rejoice. Let your supplications be known to him. Give him thanksgiving. Be careful. Give him thanksgiving. He knows what he's doing in your life. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. This is the key. We think it's just going to fall on us. We're going to hear one sermon on this, and oh, man, here come, pour it on. Here's the peace. you got to practice it. Why? Because we live the other way, with a fragmented mind, with anxiety, bitterness, doubts, fears. That's automatic to us. So we've got we've to practice it. I've got I've to thank God even though I really don't feel like it right now. I've got to praise him even though I really don't feel like it right now. I gotta rejoice. How am I gonna do that? Because I wanna cry. I wanna scream. These things are just so very wrong. Indeed, Rodney King, can't we all just get along? No, we cannot. Not without the Prince of Peace, not without the way of peace, which is narrow and hard fought. And many are those who do not find it. 
Many take the broad way, the easy way, the way that preserves all relationships, but is devoid of truth. There is no peace in the absence of truth. It's axiomatic. The subjective or experiential inner peace we have, having been reconciled with God, that's where we start. And that's where we have to remain. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's one verse, friends. One verse. And look at how powerful it is. Verse 5. It's our final point. True peace is accomplished through reconciliation and achieved through right righteousness. So there's, here's the work of it that Scripture reveals. Christians who separate sound orthodoxy or right theology from Christian ethics are unraveling the gospel. They are necessarily connected. Sound theology produces right orthopraxy or practice. The practice of your faith needs to be committed to as much as your orthodoxy, as much as you cling to right theology or what the truth is from the Bible, you must commit yourself with equal zeal to the practice of righteousness. That's what's been secured for you. That's what makes you look and act and think like Jesus. The effect of righteousness is true peace. The effect of it. Let me show you. Isaiah 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. Well, there you go. That's it. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. But that doesn't fall on you. You know, how's it going with your trusting the Lord? How's it going with that doubt? You're, well, I'm still praying that God would remove it. Really? You're praying that God will remove it. He's made you all of these eternal promises, and he's told you these things are fact. <laughs> Whose choice is it to believe and not doubt? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85, verse 10. They're necessarily, inextricably connected. Leviticus, all the way back in the, in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus 26, we see it, verse 3 and verse 6. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. You want to get rid of the fear? You want to get rid of the doubt? Reconcile with God, be at peace with him, and walk out a righteous life. Takes your willingness, takes your commitment, takes your resolve. This is one of my favorites. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's on us. You should trust because he's calling you to trust him. 
Isaiah 54, 13 to 14, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. The righteousness you shall be, in righteousness rather, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. Psalm 119, verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Or Isaiah 48, verse 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would be like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see? They're directly, inextricably, you can't pull them apart, connected. Righteousness must be practiced in our lives. I'll finish with Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace comes from and through the God of peace who sent his prince, the prince of peace, to suffer in our place, to take upon himself our sins that we might be made right with God and so have peace everlasting. It means we have to turn to him to be reconciled and that takes great humility, great contrition over our sin. Only then can we know true peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding. And at this time, in this day, Lord, give us peace. Peace will only come when you surrender. Lay down your arms and come to him. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the peace that remains available for us. Even now, as we draw breath, we can access that peace that is both external and internal, a peace that surpasses our ability to understand from whence it comes. But we know at times whither it goes. And we pray for your help that those of us who have been reconciled in you would access this peace and understand this is something we must pursue. And so we ask these things for your glory's sake and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.